Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and joining me for this bonus episode of the podcast is a legendary comedian, screenwriter, actor, and the man who will forever be best known as Lieutenant Jim Dangle. His new holiday movie, Reno 911, It's a Wonderful Heist, is available now on the Comedy Central app and on demand. Thomas Lennon, welcome back to the show. It is so nice to see you, Matt. How is everything? Everything's going well. I'm sort of gearing up for the holidays here, so I feel like this is an appropriate time to talk to you about a a holiday movie. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's great to have you back. Last time you were on, uh, with your Reno 911 cohort, Robert Ben Garant and sure. Carrie Kenny Silver. And that was around the, the whole squad. That was around the release of the Quibi season. Um, how did that work out? Ah, uh, the famous Quibi seasons. Not only did Quibi, here's a weird thing about Quibi. I almost had two shows on Quibi. Oh, wow. <laughs> You're special. I think you saw how Quibi worked out. <laughs> when Quibi started, they, uh, uh, they sent us like a signing gift which was a, like a jar of candy. And it was really interesting because it was unbelievably <laughs> reasonably priced. Yeah, it seems it like was, that they could have sprung for something more than that. I mean, they, they put a lot of money into that thing. I saw what some budgets were for other shows on Quibi, but we got a very large jar of candy. And I'm talking about real <laughs> loose, just like loose Red Hots yeah. and Jujubees <laughs> and just like loose Chuckles and like the off-brand the leftovers. stuff. Yeah. yeah, a lot of candy remnants. Um, but we did, we got... The nice thing about Quibi, it was apparently Steven Spielberg was watching because he wrote a note, to, uh, uh, not to us, but he wrote a uh, note to Jeffrey Katzenberg that got forwarded to us about how much he loved one particular episode of Reno 911, which was which nice. one? Which one was that? It's called T.T.'s Auntie's Funeral. And it's famous... Um, it's of course, obviously we, you knew when you saw the movie 1917, you're like, Reno 911 is going to spoof this. (laughs) So it was our spoof of the movie 1917. Basically Niecy Nash's, the character that screams with the, the boobs, the pendulous boobs, Niecy's character, TT. Yes, yes, yes. Basically. Yeah. So the idea was that her, her aunt had passed away and we were going to be the pallbearers for her because she was sort of a famous lady in town, but TT and a bunch of other mourners, all of whom also were screaming are leading the coffin down the street. out of, So we go out of a church, and there's a second line, a New Orleans second line band playing, and then a TT and all of her relatives screaming. And we go through a construction site, so there's like explosions. So it really looks, I think we did the whole thing in like two shots, maybe three. <laughs> but it uh, it looks as close to 1917 as we could make something look. That's really funny. I love that that's the one that Spielberg loved. He clearly, you know, he saw something, uh, yeah, in the, in the filmmaking. <laughs> it, it really clicked with uh, with Spielberg. Uh, and then we asked him to be on the show, and they, and we got the response was immediate. They said he never does stuff like that ever, ever. Don't even think about it. And we're like, <laughs> oh, okay, cool, yeah, <laughs> worth a shot. It was worth a shot. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's a positive thing about Quibi. I know you were yeah, totally. you were pretty 
We also got two Emmy nominations. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Do you feel like uh, now that it's gone, are there things that you that you want to say about Quibi that you that you couldn't say at the time? No, I think I said it all at the time. <laughs> uh, I mean, we've been on Quibi, we've been on CISO, we've been on so many different um, networks that don't exist anymore. <laughs> also, that had funny names. Quibi was a cool name when you compare it to CISO, yeah. which you can only say like that. Oh, oops. Uh, CISO. (laughs) Oh, CISO. Oh, CISO. Um, We had a show on CISO. Yeah. The Julian Dollar Properties with uh, Kulak. That's a good show. Um, you've come full circle now. You're you're back with Comedy Central for this movie. Uh, it's a wonderful heist. Mm -hmm. Um, does that feel good to be sort of back uh where you started? Yeah, this will sound dorky, but like at the beginning of the uh, It's a Wonderful Heist movie the MTV logo comes on because of course that's our you know parent company and I get a little misty eyed now when I see the when I yeah, hear the, that's the real MTV full circle, logo yeah. that well we have you know we started working for MTV uh, in 1992 yeah, so for with the state if any of the listeners of this podcast were born yet <laughs> that's when we started working there 92 yeah, actually we started a... on a show before that called you wrote it you watch it oh okay then the next year we did the state. Oh wow, yeah, um, yeah. I was about eight, nine years old, so uh, I wasn't I wasn't watching yet. But You're watching I, I've, I've caught up in guys the, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, this movie is is really fun, as is all Thank Reno nine one one stuff. And uh, I wondered a little bit if the whole thing was an ex- just an excuse to bring back Nick Swartzen oh, as absolutely. as Terry was, as a Christmas angel. I love that you had to wonder about that. <laughs> because it's so blatantly clear that we're basically just like, well, what if Nick Swartzen is Clarence? All right. <clears throat> Movie c- idea complete. That was really, <laughs> that was about it. Oh, Lord. If there was ever a Christmas angel out there, I sure could use one tonight. Oh, oh my God. Terry? No, it's the Christmas angel. It's Terry. As a Christmas angel. Yeah, that's my name. You got new skates. Yeah. You put mistletoe on your... I'm a Jenny's. All the elves gather around and then they rub it and then I make a candy cane and then snow comes out in their face. Terry. What? I'm just having the worst year ever. I hate to say this, but wouldn't the world be better if maybe I'd just never been born? <gasps> How can you say that? I just did with my mouth out into your face. Lieutenant Dangle, do you want to see what Reno would be like if you were never born? Show me, Terry. What do I have to do? It's real simple. Just hold on to my jingle berries. Is this your trick? Now this is a trick. No, it's not. That was the jumping off point. Yeah, and then there's the fun stuff with Jim Jeffries' phone and the chimpanzee and... Yeah, Jim Jeffries was fun to see. Uh, Bobby Moynihan's great. Um, I did worry when I saw the sort of premise of, you know, um, you know, what if uh, Dangle had never lived? And I thought maybe you were going to, some sentimentality was going to seep into the Reno 911 universe. And I was kind I of you know glad to see, uh, yeah. to see that that was not the case. You're just as committed to pure absurdity as always. And not only, yeah, so Dangle sees what everybody's lives will be like. We, we, at one point, there was a part in the movie where I was like, hey, I saw what all your lives were like. And that's crazy. And we're like, oh, fuck it. Why, who cares? Yeah. Just <laughs> we start don't moving. That part. There is, but, you know, as we were editing the movie, we were talking more and more in the last couple of seasons. It's like, people are used to watching, you know, people used to go to movies like Reds, which had an intermission, you know, and like Dr. Zhivago, I think, had an intermission. We're now watching TikTok in four second increments. <laughs> And we're getting bored in four and five second increments. Yeah. We're like, like next. If something's, yeah. If it's not amazing in about seven seconds, 
So I think the new Reno 911 movie is definitely, I think you could probably tell that it's being created by people that are very aware that TikTok exists. <laughs> because, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but it kind of goes along with what the show always was because it always had a sketch element to it with these different scenes and sort of unique scenarios that you're setting up that, that kind of uh, operate like sketches in a way. Well, really, well, it was a sketch show to start. And then, because we played everyone, it was sort of like a little Britain type thing. Uh, and then we only phased that out when we got picked up by Comedy Central, because we'd originally done it for Fox. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And it sat on the shelf for three years. And, but in our minds, I think we, we always thought the show would be like a little Britain type show where we're everybody, every Yeah. And there's episode. still an element of that, but, but those, you bring T. in T. some other people. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie plays Jackie still. Yeah. That's a great scene in the movie. It's really wonderful. It's really wonderful. <laughs> Climbing into the library box. It, uh, you got, you can tell that like Carrie and I are obviously pretty close. Yeah. She both, she punches me in the balls in that scene, not as a joke. <laughs> and I spend a lot of time like mopping off her pubic area. <laughs> Just like we've, we've been through everything together and now you really can't phase us. Drive to Barbara! Um, there's nobody in this box. Hi, Jackie. Jackie! Becky's not here, please. Please leave a message at the chomp. Okay, hang on one second. <laughs> Telephone call for Jackie, the transient who's oh. nesting in the book deposit box. Hello? Jackie? Yeah? Hi, it's Jim from the Sheriff's oh, Department. Oh, hey, why don't you just say so? Not Happy Christmas and nice for you to see me again. So you mentioned, you know, you started, it was set on the shelf for three years. I think the premiere on Comedy Central, uh, the, it'll be the 20th anniversary of that next year. That is correct. Yeah, 2003. Um, which is crazy. Did you ever imagine at that point that you would be playing this character and, and making this show over so much time? No, obviously not. But um, the one thing you do think about when you do a pilot is like, oh, you, you know, as you're looking at it with the moving parts of like, who are the characters and what are the relationships between them? You, you know, you do try to think... Oftentimes, I guess I've written pilots where they're like, so what's your idea for number two? And I'm like, I don't, I, haven't, I don't know. I blew it all on the first one, which was a big <laughs> idea. And, but the great thing about Reno 911 is there was no real big idea <laughs> in the first one. So it can really run forever. Um, it also, people have started pointing out between some characters dying and coming back and uh, ourselves, the actors and creators are now so old. I, there are many things we don't remember about the show. That we have to look up. So <laughs> the we fans often of, know more than you. I, oh, I for imagine. sure. Like Nick, Nick Swartzen's character has two last names, depending <laughs> on what episode you saw. It's either Terry Bernardino or Terry Jaspermans, and like everybody's got these backstories that we just don't deal with anymore. <laughs> Dangle's <laughs> yeah. got a black family in Chicago. <laughs> Remember that's Aisha Tyler and Gary Anthony Williams. There's like a million backstories that we just absolutely don't pay attention to, and I. I think Dangle's wife, Deb, has died twice. <laughs> yeah, it's like so many things. That, yeah. Yeah, there's a cartoon element there where it's, you know, people can die and come back to life. I did, I did occur to me watching it, you know, about the characters aging is, was just so funny to me. I think it, there's something about it that gets funnier and funnier as they get older, but don't oh, for sure. change. You know, yeah. they don't, we don't they... grow. And no, they're just a bunch of horny weirdos doing whippets in the cop car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but and they're all still doing the same stuff they were doing 20 years ago. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We we are a live action like sort of Roadrunner Wiley Coyote a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um Yeah. Um I mean as now that it's been 20 years or will will have been 20 years, 
do you think about uh, an end point to this? Can you imagine ending it? Do you think you'll just keep it going for, forever? I mean, how do you I think about it? I would absolutely do it forever um, to me. And it does get funnier. And also, you know, as much as I say like, oh, we don't remember what we've done. I'd say we're also still always trying to do things that, that are new to us, you know, and that are very much could only be done by us. Like there's a sort of a major plot in the new movie, which is that there's a touring exhibit at the mall. That's like the body world show. Yes. But it's with the bones of Kenny Rogers. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes I feel like I came up with something for the show that I'm like, that was, that's really good. Or I like that a lot, or this is fun or, you know, but the day that I was like, Oh, what if there's a body world show devoted? It's run by the body world's people, but it's Kenny Rogers with a touch of like, uh, King Tutankhamen. So it's like they actually are moving Kenny's bones around to different malls. And that was the day I felt I was really happy. I was like, this is, <laughs> I was put here to come up with ideas like the Kenny Rogers Body Worlds exhibit. Is this what I think this is? If you think this is Kenny Rogers' bones, it absolutely is. Please, no flash photography. <gasps> You can only keep it open in little spurts, much like a Caravaggio. Three, two, one. Oh. We just saw Kenny Rogers' bone. Oh. That is possible, yes. Yes. Can I, should we all switch? I would love to see the model. Oh, yeah, sure, please. Sure, sure, sure. Wow. Kenny Rogers' bones. Wow. There's no flash photography. The bottom side is incredible. His voice resonated inside that skull. There's wow. still cards wow. in his hand. Wow. Yeah. The kind of cards Kenny Rogers would have held in his hands had he died lying down. Amazing. You know, it's fun. We've done like full episodes like uh, in the last year, the the Roku episodes. There's a a tribute like to the the staircase murder. Um, You know, there's like it's it's fun to get to see now that we have the the parts, all the moving parts that we get to do things almost like a like a theater company, you know, like like a repertory company, the way they do plays, we get to take on different things. I don't know if you saw one of the great Roku episodes. I think later it aired on Comedy Central. There's, they still air on Comedy Central sometimes. Uh, was uh, Jones Teenth, where uh, Jones has written a one-man tribute to the black experience in which he plays a California Raisin and Eddie Murphy and Bill Cosby <laughs> <laughs> and Easy e and, and Sweeney Todd. Uh, just so he can do like five or six songs from Sweeney Todd. It's an amazing piece. Yeah. I mean, in a way it's like, it, as I said, it's, it has elements of a sketch show, but there is a structure to it and there are these characters. It is it more satisfying in a way or or maybe even easier to to deal with that it, you're not just, have you don't have the open book of a of a sketch show like the state where it's like you could do anything you have right. some you have right. some constraints that that probably i could imagine well, help it's 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 fascinating because the reason we do reno 911 is because we were writing a sketch show that got canceled at fox and one of the reasons it was given was look sketch shows are very problematic for people to watch because the reason most successful shows become very successful is you tune in to see those people that you know and love how are they going to react to this yeah you want to see your friends every week that's a big it's a big big uh, they ran a, a long long time so once you have established archetypes who you know sort of you're you get excited to see how they're going to be 
And I, you know, it's interesting because we were told, look, you're not going to, your sketch show is not going anywhere because it has no, there's no like tune in to see how those characters I love are doing. That's why people do, you know, recurring characters, certainly on sketch shows quite a bit. Something we fought on the state forever. Um, yeah, you didn't want to do that. We were real assholes about it, <laughs> which is why our catchphrases were, I want to dip my balls in it, was one of them. You're like, you want a catchphrase? Here's a catchphrase. Sure. Here's one that you can't, no one can say. So yeah, the the hard lesson of no one's going to watch random sketch people every week on Fox on a Saturday night um, taught us the lesson that is the reason the show exists still, which is you have to have characters and they need to be somewhat great archetypes of specific things, you know? Right. Totally. Um, now, I mean, you've been, you've been making this show for so long in different formats. You've also obviously been working on other stuff uh, throughout. Are there, is there anything else that you have coming up that you're particularly excited about or, or things you're uh, working on? For sure. I mean, the, um, all three of the Ronan Boyle novels that I wrote, um, aren't, which is, they made the bestseller list, which is nice. So yeah, uh, cool. I wrote these three novels about a kid who gets recruited for the leprechaun police. It's, it's not complicated. <laughs> and there's three of them. And I'm, I'm right now I'm adapting, uh, I'm adapting them for a great big DreamWorks animated feature. Oh, wow. That's exciting. Which will be cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's called, the first book is called the Ronan Boyle on the Bridge of Riddles. The second one is called Ronan Boyle on the Swamp of Certain Death. And the third one is called Ronan Boyle into the Strange Place. Mm. Um, I did also see on your, uh, on your resume that you're in Jerry Seinfeld's Pop-Tarts movie, which is a project that fascinates me. And I'm very curious to see what that turns into. It's a stunning picture. It's also fun to be in something like that where, you know, so often what I'm doing is like, Hey, let's steal this shot and let's, um, we can bring costumes from home. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, does anybody have a wig? Yeah. But then you do like a Jerry Seinfeld Netflix picture and I was wearing like later hosen in the movie. <laughs> and the, the guy who came to fit the lederhosen on me is the same guy that Tom Cruise flies places to make sure his suits fit right. So that was the guy who showed up to make sure my lederhosen fit for the uh, the Jerry Seinfeld movie. And I was like, oh, man, this is nice to be back in like a big picture <laughs> where there's a guy, there's a lederhosen adjustment dude. I, I can't even imagine why there is somebody with lederhosen in a movie about Pop-Tarts. Um, is there anything you can share about the uh, about who you play? Or uh, uh, Probably. I think it might, it might probably says in my IMDb, um, I play a fascinating figure uh, named Harold Von Braunhut. Uh, is this a real person? It is a real person. It's a sketch of a real person. We'll see if it's a real person or not. If it's, by the way, a good, good, good way to tell is if I'm playing it, is it a real person? I think by the end, we by know, the time you get done with them, we know Tom's wheelhouse. Mm, they don't cast me for the real guy quite a bit. You have people for that. No. So it's uh, basically, yeah, it's a, it's a movie about the invention of the pop tart, uh, a battle between, um, uh, Post and uh, Kellogg's to create a square breakfast <laughs> item, and uh, but it's treated with the gravitas of like the right stuff. It's a, you know it's it's a it's like t treated as a sort of intense drama with an incredible cast of yeah fun the people. cast is out of control. Yeah, it's we nuts. had uh, Sarah Cooper on the podcast talking about it uh, not too long ago. Yeah, yeah she's, she's great. Stone Cold genius. She's amazing in the movie too. Um, it's a trip because in that movie. Usually in a movie they have, um, in the makeup trailer, they have the numbers of everybody in the cast with their head shot up just to keep track of like who's in the movie. 
and that one had 40 headshots in a row and you would just be like i would walk down in the morning and be like holy shit <laughs> yeah because the the headshots were stunning yeah there's definitely some surprises coming up in that movie too yeah that's really exciting so what i want to do with our little bit of time left is our segment called the first laugh so i'm going to ask you some some firsts um in your career and, and life um going all the way back uh, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up uh it was i was uh a little bit obsessed with uh, an album called the best of bob newhart and we used to you know we, listening to comedy records used to be a thing we did a fair amount when you know there's really only broadcast tv or um but uh an L, an lp that we had that we i probably wore out i could probably do most of the record the best of bob newhart even <laughs> right now but i remember thinking oh my god this guy is such a genius because he would, it was, most of it was like either phone calls or speeches, but he leaves like these great pauses for something that you're not hearing, like in Abe Lincoln versus Madison Avenue, he leaves those great pauses. Um, and so that, Best of Bob, Bob Newhart was probably my number one, like, go-to, like, try to aspire to be something like that. Do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny, that you could make other people laugh? That is something I'm still working on. You know, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if very funny people ever feel like they're very funny. Um, I feel like I'm being sincere. I went to New York with the intention of being like a pretty serious actor. And then I just, I don't know why. And I then something happened. Something, something happened. I just imply a certain silliness to people that I don't. It's funny because I can, I take myself so seriously, but uh, no one else does, which I guess has worked out nicely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the thing that happened is you met the the members of the state that, that ended up being the state. And um, so I'd love to hear uh, quickly about the first time that you actually performed as the state um, at, was it at NYU? And... Sure. The, the state had actually been together. I was friends with everybody in the group, but I was not in the group uh, at first. I'd gone to the very first audition and then I didn't go back to the callbacks. Um, because I was in a play by Peter Hedges. Yeah, you were trying to do uh, something serious. I was trying to be serious. Uh, it was a pretty dumb play, actually, called The Scooter Cycle. <laughs> but it was by Peter Hedges, who wrote Gilbert Grape and things like that. He was my mentor at the time, uh, and probably still. Um, and so I went to the first audition of the state, didn't go back to the second one, and then the group had formed, and they got like a really good reputation around NYU. A lot of us lived in a dorm called Brittany. And I was always at their shows and became friends with Joe and Jan and uh, Showalter and Black and everybody. And of course, Carrie I'd known since we were kids, like 16, we went to theater camp together. So I was sort of around the state and then I think maybe I did lights for one show or sound or something like that. Um, and then uh, a really great actor quit the group, uh, a guy who's still a friend of mine named George, quit uh, what was called a new group at the time. And I don't know why they felt like they needed to replace him because there was already like 10 white dudes in yeah. this group or like, at the time, we need, nine. We need another white dude. I don't know why the fuck they thought they did need me. But they, I remember at Weinstein Hall, Joe Latruglio officially with, I think, Black and Showalter, I got the official offer to come and join the group. And we were sitting down in Weinstein Hall at NYU and... Uh, one thing I can guarantee is that we were sitting in the smoking section of the dining hall that had the little <laughs> aluminum ashtrays. So then I joined the group and uh, my first couple of meetings were rough. It's a very, 
pitching something to the state if they do not like it it was not a, a warm and fuzzy environment <laughs> of support yeah. it was like a wall of fucking death glares so my first pitch we used to we used to meet on the seventh floor at 721 broadway in this weird kind of like empty uh, workspace that had like a plywood wall in in uh on broad 721 broadway and i pitched a sketch that everyone absolutely fucking hated it was called the dream isthmus it was like a fantasy island where very reasonably priced dreams come true you know, it was like somebody wants a new stapler. It was just like shit. It was fucking terrible. <laughs> it was a really not a good sketch. And I remember just looking around at that group and being like, oh, we're not like, we're not a fun collective. We're like a, we're like a fucking, like, we're, 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 we're a family who's having a fight at Thanksgiving for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and that's so, continued. Yeah. And, it, but it was great. It was great practice to pitch, pitch stuff to people that don't, that would rather get their own stuff in the show, you know? It'll make you like really good at pitching studio executives and people who also are not interested in your material. <laughs> so yeah, it's good practice. Later on, I became one of the people that probably wrote, probably Ben. There's a couple of people that wrote like the absolute, like a lot in the group. And um, yeah, I would, I would end up becoming one of those, I think. Who are the weak links that just uh, never wrote anything? They know who they are. <laughs> Uh, do you, do you remember <laughs> the first time that you met one of your comedy heroes, uh, someone who you just really looked up to in comedy and, and what it was like to meet them at about nine or 10 years old, uh, John Belushi was filming a movie in Chicago called continental divide. So this would be probably around 79, 80, 1979 or 80, somewhere in, in that general area. And so John Belushi, my dad worked at the Art Institute of Chicago for about 45 years. And John Belushi had filmed a scene at the Art Institute. And my dad was there as a technical advisor just because they can't, they don't want to melt the paintings and stuff with lights. Um, as he was when they shot the Ferris Bueller scene. And so he shot this, he came home and he had a Polaroid picture, my dad, of himself and John Belushi. And this is, you know, melted my brain. By the way, that scene is cut from Continental Divide. It's not in the movie, but <laughs> he walks her around the museum talking to her about paintings. And so my dad told John Belushi a bunch of stuff about the paintings. And then the next day we were going downtown to, like, to see Santa Claus and eat at Marshall Fields. And there's a street blocked off right at State and Lake where we're getting off. And we look and see and there's all these cops and they're, John Belushi's filming in a different scene from Continental Divide. And we walk up to the police barricade and John Belushi sees my dad and goes, Tim! And waves him over and a bunch <laughs> of Chicago cops like lift up the barricade and let us in to hang out with John Belushi. John Belushi uh, tussled my hair and he punched me in the stomach and he said, hey, do you <laughs> want to be in the shot? Um, and he was really, really sweet to us. And I think I didn't because of who he was at the time. I know people say like, you know, you didn't talk for like a day or two. I didn't talk. I didn't talk for like, <laughs> yeah. I think a couple of days. Just because you were kind of in shock by the was, whole experience? It'd be the, I mean, the equivalent now would be like someone like, um, I don't know, meeting the actual Iron Man. Yeah. You know, or like... <laughs> That's how big of a deal he was at it the was time. It was like, yeah, Thor, but not the actor who plays Thor. It would be like meeting yeah. Thor. Yeah, it was a very, <laughs> very, very big deal. Are you in um, the movie? I was not in the background of Continental Divide. That was the other thing that I was mad about forever. I was like, why are we going to fucking see Santa Claus? I could be standing in the background of Continental <laughs> Divide, of a, of, a, of a montage scene. Yeah, Santa Claus comes every year. John Belushi only came this year. one John time. Belushi's, yeah. John Belushi's on State Street outside one time. Uh, that's hilarious. 
but he was very, very, very kind to me and uh, really, really a sweet person. And it meant a lot, I got to say. Yeah. Um, the last question is, uh, do you have a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? Ooh, um, yeah, there's really, really a bunch of them. Okay. Uh, well, here's one that I'll just go back to every time. <laughs> it was very not funny when it happened. Uh, but so the state, we had just finished our first season of the TV show. It was about to premiere and they do something they used to do. It was called a radio tour where you go to like one radio station in New Jersey and then they, they will patch you through to like, you, you wouldn't, I mean like yeah, sometimes it's like every country. six or eight minutes for like four hours. So you seemingly appear Jesus. everywhere in the country. <laughs> yeah. It's very intense. And your brain kind of starts to melt at the end of it. But so the state were up, all of us, 11 of us, chain smokers. We get in the van at like 4 a.m. We're out in New Jersey at a studio. Our show premieres on MTV tonight. So it's like got to be, it's like the winter of 93 or something like that. And we're so excited. We get into our first radio interview, which, radio interview, which is with the Power Pig in Tampa. And he's like, hey, good morning. We got the state. We got the state. We're on the Power Pig in Tampa. And he's like, uh, the state's got a comedy show coming on to MTV tonight. Uh, have you guys uh, have you guys seen your uh, review in the USA Today? <laughs> and we're standing there, all eleven of us, look at each other. Cigarettes fall out of our mouths, and we're like, No, no, we we haven't seen the review. Well, guess what? I'm going to read it to you right now. Here you go. Every executive that greenlit this show should be given a urine test. One of the all time <laughs> lows for MTV. And he read us the meanest oh my review. God. Uh, so this is like our first day in show business. The dude at the Power Pig in Tampa <laughs> reads a hateful review to us. That's our whole interview. Yeah, it just cuts you guys down. And then, and then he ended with, "Okay, if you guys don't remember me, uh, here's you can always just look me up. Here's my name. It's H A Y W O D J A B L O W M E." And we're like, and we write it down, and we're like. <laughs> Hey, yeah. would you blow me? Hey, would you blow me? And then he hung up on us. <laughs> and that was our first day in show business. And it wasn't funny then. And I thought, you know, I have thought about like, we got to as a group, go find the dude from the power pig and play some like lifelong prank on him. Yes. You know, like something, something like fight club where we like con convince him the world is not what it is or like some real long prank to the dude from the power pig. Yeah. So yeah, that wasn't funny at the time. We laugh about it now, but we're also all still, you know, we're all in our 50s and we're still pretty mad. The state is pretty mad at the power pig. Yeah. Yeah. Not cool, power pig. Come on, power pig. So thank you for, for everything that you've done. And uh, and this new movie is so funny. And um, yeah, I can't wait to see what comes next. If I could do a quick plug, I was not really even aware that you can just watch it on the Comedy Central app. Yes, like, you can. Literally for free. Or on the website, totally for free. Um, and uh, it's simpler than you think. Yeah, everyone should check it out. Thanks, man. Well, that was just the best. So thanks again to Thomas Lennon for coming back on this podcast. You can watch Reno 911. It's a wonderful heist right now on cc.com, the Comedy Central app, and Comedy Central On Demand. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. 
And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.